Uh, the handout tonight is the same as last week's. So if you have last week's, you don't need a new one. If you don't have it, or you just threw it away. No, Miss Jesus. <laughs> just messing with you. Thank you. Just put your hand up, and Lance will gladly give you another one. looking at the, uh, the claims that are made uh, by individuals uh, who are trying to, uh, I guess you would say, find fault with Christianity and the Bible. They're really trying to, to poke holes in it for whatever their reasons are. And we're looking at the four main claims that surround the issue uh, that is raised, which is, if God is good... Uh, and all-powerful, why is there evil? So therefore, because there is evil and suffering, either God is not powerful, or if he is all-powerful, then he's not good because he doesn't stop it. So then we went through the five major explanations that are in the Bible uh, for suffering, and those are at the bottom of page one of your notes and the top of page two. So when it comes to that, there are some claims that are made in response to that. The first one that we looked at, and again, we're just, we'll cover the first three as review very quickly. It is said, it is a contradiction to say that God is sovereign and God is good in view of all the evil in the world. And that is, again, based on a presupposition. Uh, it is not a true contradiction, uh, to say the least. Um, and we spent some time on that. Then the second claim is the Bible contains many different answers to the problems of evil, which we, we said there are five. Um, of why there's evil and suffering in the world, and many of these answers contradict each other. And so we went through them again and saw that there is no contradiction, uh, and that it would be normal uh, when you're dealing with very complicated issues for there to be more than one answer, because it's not one definitive answer, it, it depends. So again, we're not dealing with the fact that truth is relative. It's not that, that something is true under this condition, but it's not true under that condition, because that's the only answer. The idea is, is that there are many reasons that exist for suffering. And so then depending on what's going on and what God's goal is, that would help us to explain uh, what is taking place. If any of you have ever read the story of, of uh, Charles, or some people call him Chuck Colson, he was one of those individuals that was arrested way back in the 70s um, when they had what they called the big Watergate scandal. And while he was in prison, he became a believer. Um, and after he uh, was released from his time in prison, uh, he began a ministry called, uh, I think it was called Prison Fellowship. And his main desire uh, really was twofold. One was to help uh, individuals in prison 
uh, to be more successful in making it on the outside. And of course that was done by making sure that the gospel was being presented and individuals were being discipled in the prisons. And then secondarily, uh, what he tried to do, what his group tried to do was to uh, affect the way that judges pass out sentences. Uh, and so in, in um, sentencing reform, he wasn't looking to get individuals who are guilty of things off, but he was trying to ensure that they made more sense in the, in the, in the sense of that when a guy gets released, um, they don't have contradictory rules they have to follow, which really makes it difficult for them to, uh, to be successful on the outside. An example of that would be, uh, and this is still true in most states, if you, let's say you do, you're committed, you're, let's say you've, you've convict, committed a crime, let's just say it's a class C felony, you do five years, you get out, you're on parole, and they want you to be successful, and they want you to find a job and all that kind of stuff, but they have a rule. The rule is you can't associate with other convicts. Well, most every single group that helps convicts is a gathering of what? Convicts. So how are they supposed to work with these groups? Because technically they can get in trouble because they go to an AA meeting or they go to a, uh, to a group that's going to help you train you for a job. Well, you're in a classroom full of convicts. And so in some of the states, if you have a gung-ho uh, PO officer, well, you can't do that. So that, that's just kind of dumb. It's self-defeating. So he was working on changing that. So anyway, so he be, he's become very, very popular. He's old now. I, I think he's still alive. I'm not sure. Um, but he'd written several books, and he was kind of, uh, you know, did a lot of speaking because he was trying to raise money for this organization because it is nationwide. And so, anyway, he began to have trouble swallowing, and he went to go see his doc a doctor, which was his friend. And his friend said, you have cancer in your tongue and in your throat. I think that's how it went. And he says, the first thing you have to do is you're going to have to stop all of your speaking for the next three months. And he said, and he got really angry. He said, I can't do that. There are, there are too many things I have to do, too many places I have to go, and places I have to speak. And the doctor said, well, you don't really have a choice. You're going to have to have this treatment done and this kind of surgery. And if you want to have a voice, you're going to have to do this. And so Chuck was still pretty upset. And his doctor friend was also a Christian. And so his friend said, well, let me share something with you. He says, you may not like it, but I'm going to tell you anyway. He says, I'm just convinced that for every single non-believer that gets cancer, God allows a believer to get cancer so the world can watch both of them and see the difference. And so the world's going to be watching you to see how you handle this. And basically said, you need to just grow up and be a Christian. <laughs> and so Chuck uh, canceled his speaking engagements. And he, uh, but again, that, that's just one explanation. Um, when you look on that list of why God allow, why did God allow that to happen to him? He's so important. Well, no one is, uh, is that important that uh, God needs them to do anything, um, but God has his reasons. Claim number three, the Bible's explanations for suffering and evil are not satisfying. That's just because you don't like the answer doesn't mean it's wrong, because that's really what that's saying. So the, last, so the fourth one, which is where we're going to begin tonight, is this. Uh, is the claim is is that the God of the Bible is immoral. Since all definitions of God, or maybe most definitions of God, depending on who you talk to, would claim that God is moral, to, to say that because suffering and evil exist, that means God is immoral, therefore he does not or cannot exist. So again, 
Uh, let me say this, that without God, an individual has no way of being able to distinguish morality from immorality. Uh, we spent a little bit of time talking about this. There's books written on this subject. And again, it co- comes down to this, is where does the idea of morality come from? Who decides what is moral, what is immoral? Um, uh, even when it comes to what we would call universal ideas of morality, where does that come from? Uh, there are too many, uh, um, not just coincidences, but there's too much consistency throughout the world um, as far as what is right, what is wrong, uh, those kinds of things. Even individuals who um, uh, are, are living outside of the law still have a moral standard. There may not be much of one compared to ours, but they all have one. You know, uh, If you join a group of thieves, they do have a rule. It's not written down, but they don't steal from each other. If you do that, they'll cut your hand off or they'll kill you. Right? So thieves even have some sense. Um, or you don't mess with another man's family. You know, if you do that, then they believe they have the right to come. To- so again, there's, there's these standards everywhere. So if you don't have God, you don't have a, a, a standard outside of us uh, that sets the stage. And so there's no way to determine what is objectively evil and objectively good. That's really what we're getting at. It's, it's not just what do I consider good and evil and what do you consider good and evil. If we're dealing with a society or a group, how is good and evil determined objectively? Um, and uh, if you don't have God, you don't have a way to do that. So again, uh, so, so uh, the, the one book I was reading on this subject, there's a bunch of them on this subject, but one of them said this, answer this question. Defend the definition of marriage as only between a man and a woman without using the Bible or any concepts assuming the God of the Bible. I don't know how you, how you would do that. Um, I think I mentioned to you before a book written by, uh, let me say his name wrong, Vishal uh, Mangwaldi. And that's the, book, that's the book that's called The Book That Made Your World. It's a great book. Um, and one of the, the main themes of the book is how many different societies, and he traces it in India uh, where, he, where he grew up, this idea, and that is, is that the world has borrowed a lot of concepts from the Bible. So if you eliminate the Bible and you eliminate that source, then how do you defend a lot of things? And so when it comes to marriage, that would be uh, the one that, uh, I, I, I mean, I thought about it for a while. I didn't break my brain trying to do it um, because I assumed the person who asked the question already knew there was no way to do it. <laughs> but um, it is difficult to be able to do that, to defend marriage as being between a man and woman without assuming the God of the Bible. So again, what many of your philosophers who are Christians will say is that this objection to God based on morality, actually provides a powerful argument for God. So there's a guy who pastored in New York City for a long time. He's very, very clever. He's very smart. Uh, He's not right on everything, um, but he's an incredible communicator. His name is Tim Keller. And he said this, Modern-day objections to God that are based on evil in the world are based on a sense of fair play and justice. People, we believe, ought not to suffer. They ought not to be excluded. They should not die of hunger or oppression. 
But the evolutionary mechanism of natural selection depends on death, destruction, and violence of the strong against the weak. These things are all perfectly natural. So on what basis, then, does the atheist judge the natural world to be horribly wrong, unfair, and unjust? The non-believer in God doesn't have a good basis for being outraged at injustice. If you are sure this natural world, natural world is unjust and filled with evil, you are assuming the reality of some extra-natural or supernatural standard by which to make your judgment. So that gets kind of to the crux of the matter, and that is, um, if you know, that, that's why sometimes the arguments for or in dealing with the issue of evolution, and when I say evolution, I'm basically talking about uh, macro evolution. That would be one species becoming another one. Okay, no, I don't. I mean, there may be some believers who believe that. I, I find it hard to believe, you know, uh, that they really believe that we came from apes and, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, there's just no scientific evidence there at all, period. And there is a growing movement for the past 30, 40 years of what they call intelligent design, uh, which some have said, is this another way to argue for God, which I would agree with. Uh, but the idea is, is that if you do not use the Bible and only look at the scientific evidences as it is laid out in the world, uh, the only conclusion you can come to is there has to be intelligent design behind what we've seen because it is mathematically impossible for what we see to exist by chance. It's just, it's just, it is an impossibility. Um, if, you, if you like biology and you're pretty smart, uh, there's a book written by Michael Behe, which is called Darwin's Black Box. Uh, I got through part of it. Um, there's, it's a little thick. However, um, that's just because I, I don't read science books. But basically, he came up with a term which is called irreducible complexity. Now, the reason why that term is important is because in your basic evolutionary model, which I really don't even think any scientist actually believes this anymore, but the basic evolutionary model, uh, if you're going by what Darwin said, is then that all life, no matter how complicated, can be traced back to a, uh, a very simple single cell kind of a thing. And, the, and it's always the idea is that as you continue to go back, it becomes simple. And then if you reverse that, that easily explains all the diversity that we have. The problem with that is when you break down the cell and you break down DNA and RNA and all those kinds of things, they, he, he came up with this thing where you get to a point to where you get down to the smallest component that's needed for life. There are, and I believe the number is 47. There are 47 factors that must all exist at the same time. And they all must work perfectly for these cells to be able to divide, multiply, and go on with whatever you say life is. And he says, so it goes against the Darwinian theory of evolution and almost all the other basic theories of evolution, uh, as far as people trying to tweak the definition, and that because you cannot go further than, than beyond the 47 parts of, I think it's RNA or whatever it is, um, that that alone proves there has to be an intelligent designer because that is mathematically impossible. And what's interesting is that 
since that book came out, and the book came out after he wrote his, his paper, uh, there's been a few responses by the scientific community, but most of them just ignore it because they can't answer it. And what ends up taking place is that for many, um, at least the ones that I've, that I've read that have been honest, is they say, yeah, that's a really big problem. Uh, and a few have said the same thing that a few other individuals have said through the years, and that is this. Well, all I know is this, is even though the term irreducible complexity seems to be true, we certainly cannot believe it because if we do, the only option left is to believe in God and we just can't have that. So it, just comes, so it doesn't come down to evidence or any of those things. It just comes down to personal preference. They don't want there to be God. Uh, and so that's what we're left with. So that's part of the problem with all of this. Um, if we look at it in another way, maybe in a more of a positive way, when you and I are discussing any subject matter, if we say, okay, let's say for the sake of argument you are correct, uh, what have we done here? To engage the person in discussion and to show the strength of our argument, we assume their point of view, their worldview, and the parameters that they're giving. If you've ever done that, uh, it can work really well. I did this once with a college kid. I was at Starbucks, and he was very, very talkative, and he saw what I was reading, and all the books I had with me um, were, you could tell by the title, that it was at least religious and Christian. And so... He, uh, he asked me, the way the conversation started was he wanted to know if I would be willing to sign a petition. And I said, what is this for? And he says, this is to save the whales. And I, so I had just finished reading a couple of books on um, uh, um, apologetics. So my mind was flying through all these things I read. And so I said, without even planning on it, but I just kind of went with it. And I said, oh, great. I know what this is. He said, what? I go, you're one of those Christians. He said, what? I go, you're one of those Christians. He says, you're trying to use this as a backdoor of, oh, let's save the whales so you can start talking to me about God. He goes, I go, I go, look. I said, I wasn't born yesterday. I said, you and I both know that there's no reason for anyone who believes in evolution to believe in saving the whale. If they can't make it, tough. It's survival of the fittest. So your argument is, well, because we're created by God and his image, you know, we're supposed to take care of the planet. We have responsibility to take care of the animals. And so that's your, that's your philosophical base. I said, because you and I both know that's the only one that makes sense, why we should save the whale. And so it's your backdoor way. I said, what church do you want to invite me to? He goes, I don't even believe in God. I go, you are a liar. I said, why would you ask me to sign this if you don't believe in God? Only a Christian would want to save the whales. What is your philosophical basis for trying to save a whale? He goes, I don't think I have one. <laughs> and so I, said, so I said, well, actually, I think you're right. I said, you don't have one. And I said, I will gladly sign it because I am a Christian. The problem is, is you can no longer ask anyone to sign it because you're not a Christian. And you have, no, I said, you're being dishonest if you're asking people to sign a petition and save the whale if you're not a believer, so you don't even think we should take care of the planet. He goes, well, no, I think we should. I said, okay, why? 
You say, well, it's the right thing to do? I said, are you asking me or are you telling me? Here's what I'm telling you. I said, okay, based on what? Well, it just is. I said, how long have you been in college? <laughs> it's my third year. So in three years of college, you're going to come up with that? Well, it just is? I said, you need a better argument than that. <laughs> and then that's when he said, who, who are you? I said, I just pastor a little church. I said, these books I'm reading are Christian books. And I said, I, I don't believe in God um, because um, of superstition. I believe it's true. And he said, okay. <laughs> and that was, I never saw him again. I was hoping to see him again. You know, I, I marked the day, you know, that we were there. And I thought, well, maybe he comes here every Tuesday or whatever. And I'll see him again. But I didn't. But so what the, what the point was is I, I kind of assumed his role and his argument, which is the non, which if you, but if you think about it, it doesn't make any sense. He, he did believe in evolution, but no one ever told him that that philosophically was inconsistent with what he was trying to accomplish. So, and it really was a lot of fun to do that. It was great. I enjoyed it. I do wish that you know, he would have been there again or we would have gone further. Um, but I have noticed, and you, and you have to realize this, is that more, it's more and more true today than ever before, and that is people are willing to live with logical inconsistencies. It drives me up the wall. They're willing to do it. Logical inconsistencies. They're willing to live with it. Um, it used to be, even with non-believers, if you could point out to a person on any topic, it doesn't have to be religious, on any topic, if you could point out to them that they were logically inconsistent, it would bother them, and they would, and they would, and they would want to correct what they were thinking, or maybe their line of argument, or what have you, revisit it, because no one wanted to be illogical, because it was, the assumption is, well, you're just wrong, which I believe is correct. But today, it's more now cemented, partly, um, partly because of politics, but I think it's, politics is just kind of following along with what our culture is, is the direction our culture is going. There is this idea. So one of those ideas would be, again, the abortion, you know, the, the right to abortion. Uh, going all the way back in the 70s, when it first became, when it was judged by the Supreme Court uh, to be a right, and et cetera, et cetera. There's, you, have to, you have to live with logical inconsistencies to support it. All right? Because if they, so you're saying that we can abort a baby, let's say, in the second trimester. But if a woman gives birth to a child in the second trimester, what is the logical reason to do everything we can to save the baby? Because it's not a person, according to their argument. It's not a person. Why would we, what's the big deal? And people say, well, but that wasn't the woman's choice. So it's the woman's choice that makes it a person. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Who has that ability? At what point? And I think a lot of people have, well, at least a lot of Christians have pointed this out with the um, uh, question that's gone on with the lady who is up for, to be the Supreme Court Justice. Um, now, where you are on who she is and what she stands for, when she was asked, did she have a definition for a woman, she said no. And then said she wasn't a biologist, which would already be going in the wrong direction um, because all you have to say is, whoa, so, if, so, we're, so we can at least agree that biology is the, is the standard we would use to determine if a, if a person is a woman because she wouldn't agree with that either. Um, and so there's these logic, and then they ask, when did life begin? And she says she didn't know. And <laughs> she said, and what school did you go to again? But anyway, um, 
But the idea with all of that is that you live with logical inconsistencies. Uh, and people, many people sometimes, I, I, I don't think it's that they, they don't see it, they just they refuse to see it or they refuse to acknowledge it. They definitely refuse to live by it. It's, they do, they, we do live by preferences and then the preferences that prevail are basically the ones that either scream the loudest or have the most politicians on their side or have the most votes. And that's, that's what we're left with. Uh, and so that's why, if, you, if you've ever read, not that you would want to read this, but you know there's a manual that psychologists use. Uh, the main reason the manual, the, 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 this is a DSMV, uh, and the, the main reason that, that manual was developed, the first reason was, there's, there's always been this division in the medical world where those uh, medical doctors do not believe that psychology is a science. And so those in the field of psychology desperately want to prove that, it, that there is a science to it. So there's this, there's this gap. So the DSMV, the first one that was published, the goal of that was to catalog the supposed mental disorders that people have, emotional disorders, and, and catalog them because it looks more scientific. And so they came up with a list of all these different disorders. So they're on the fifth one now, and through the years, there's been things that have changed. Like, for example, um, it used to be, if you get a, a DSMV-3, and I forget the year it was published, but it was, it's an older one, it states in there that an individual who's homosexual or has homosexual desires, that, 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 there's a, that they have a mental problem and it needs to be addressed. And then when they came with the DSMV-4, that was, no longer the, that was no longer true. That was no longer seen uh, as a problem. So who decided that? How was that decided? Um, it is believed by many. They thought that when the DSMV-5 came out, that they would then list pedophilia as no longer being criminal and no longer being a dysfunction. Didn't, they don't quite word it that way. It is believed by most that when they come out with the next one, that will no longer be a disorder. Uh, so this changing with the push in politics and society as far as how we determine morality. The second, uh, just so you know, just, just, just as information, the DSMV is basically used by a majority of psychologists to fill out insurance forms. So when they file a claim with someone's insurance to get the insurance to pay, they then look there to see what words they can use in diagnosis to say, okay, he's got this, 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 and this, and therefore that justifies the billing to the health insurance company, and, they pay, and that's how they pay their bills. Uh, but there's a lot going on there because people who are psychologists and psychiatrists and uh, sociologists uh, go by that guide. That guide continues to change. Um, and so that's, again, why we have a lot of the different problems we have and why certain movements continue to prevail um, is because of that. Uh, the desire to lower the age of consensual sex is not based on that, but it goes along with what that book says. And eventually they would determine, or it would be stated somehow, that someone who is, depending on what state you're in, if they're 14, they can decide on their own. Or when they're 12, they can be considered a consenting adult kind of a thing um, and it just it just continues to move in that direction uh, so there's a lot of things that are tied together uh, that motivate and continue to influence the way our society functions which again remember that for the most part even though our society has been in the past greatly influenced by the Bible that continues to wane 
a great deal. And we're moving away from that. The move away from moral absolutes is a move away from the scripture. Now, I'm not one of those that believes that our nation was founded as a Christian nation, because it wasn't. There were a lot of Christians, but it wasn't a Christian nation. Um, but it was heavily influenced by the Bible. A lot of our early fathers, some were Christians, some were deists. They weren't Christians. Uh, you can tell by their language. You know, that's why you find a lot of the writings, they don't really refer to God, they refer to providence. And that's not because they were Puritans. That was because they were, it was another way of talking about a supreme being without identifying the God of the Bible. They didn't want to do that. Um, but anyway, nonetheless, we were heavily influenced by the Bible, absolutely, in every way. Um, and so as we move away from that, by state and as a nation, uh, we are then in the quandary that we're in now. These Christians see it as a quandary. The secular world doesn't. And that's why they're trying to move away from it completely uh, as much as possible. And, and we are in that, we're, we're going in that direction. We've been going in that direction. And it, I don't believe it's going to stop. Um, because, you know, we've tried, you know, there's been theories about electing certain individuals into government so we can kind of stop the flow and the direction we're going in. And that's just not working. It's not going to work. Because the problem is the heart of man. And uh, that can only really be changed by God. But nonetheless, um, let's rein it back in, or rein me back in. Um, so uh, uh, that that is uh, so. Going back again to this uh, to the point that we're trying to make, when you are talking to individuals about these kinds of issues, sometimes it's good to go ahead and concede their point of view. The goal is just to show them the logical inconsistencies of that view. That's what the goal is. If you ever read Francis Schaeffer and his books, what he will tell you that you should do is you take that person's view to its logical conclusion. Um, so some have done that with uh, the abortion thing. So if the baby is not a person, when does it become a person? And so it was argued by some that it becomes a person when it takes its first breath. There are actually many in the secular world who, who don't go along with that for different reasons. I think it's more sociological and political than anything else but they don't go along with that. So if you take the kinds of argument, arguments that are made by non-believers to support abortion, what you end up with is those same arguments then will promote both infanticide and euthanasia. And, you'll ha and you have more and more people now saying, well, yeah, that's right. And so uh, there is, um, in Europe, I can't remember which country it is, uh, but there is a belief, I don't think it's law yet, uh, but it's, it's being proposed. It's, it's, all, it's failed for the past several years to be passed, but that is, is that the parents should be given up to one year to decide if the child should live. So they don't use the word child, um, but this, uh, and I don't think they use the word fetus because the, the baby's been born, but there, but there is a push that you know, a child doesn't really have, is not really a person until other factors come in, personality, et cetera, that doesn't happen until 12 months, 14 months, 15 months, whatever, as so a parents should actually be able to decide at that point if they should live or not. And then they just kill the child. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember this, but remember a couple, see, this is before COVID, so this would be three years ago, maybe four years ago, and I do think it was Norway, uh, there was a couple that was taking the hospital that, she, that the woman had given birth in, and several doctors to court and suing them. She gave birth to a child, 
and they told her they're taking the child back to do what they normally do. They clean the baby, do measurements, all that kind of stuff. And they came back and said basically that her child had, had died, didn't make it. Well, what they found out later was, is that's not what happened. What happened was, is the doctor, I think, noted some kind of defect. It wasn't a, I don't know how big of a deal, what, how, how life-altering it would be, but they noticed some kind of defect. The doctor decided the child would not have a certain quality of life, and they basically put the, the kid to death without telling the parent. And what came out, uh, and I, don't, I do not know what happened with the lawsuit itself, but what came out was that that incident was not unique. It was probably the fifth or sixth time that year that it happened, where the doctors had, were, believed they had the right to determine if you, the baby you've given birth to should live or not. All right? And normally what happens, what, what people have recognized is when it comes to Europe in general, our country is a few years behind. We end up, that ends up being like a predictor of where we're headed. Now, I do think it'll take a few more years to get to that point, but I do believe it's coming. You know, in one way or another, the way, the way it will be determined, um, you know, it's, it's going to be those with severe handicaps. That's how it's going to be presented. And then that line is going to move. The definition of what is severely handicapped, what is quality of life, who determines quality of life. They've already tried hard to move that outside of the parameters or the realm of the parents. Same thing's happening in education. You know, uh, throughout COVID, when all these parents started showing up at these different school board meetings saying, you know, I, I'm now seeing what you're teaching my kid. I don't like this. What are you doing this for? This is ridiculous. This isn't education. And there's people who are getting upset saying that the parents don't have a right to have an opinion on any of these issues. That it's, it's the state's responsibility. That's an, that's an argument that actually goes all the way back to the 70s. It goes all the way back when they introduced um, uh, subsidizing child care for poor families. It goes back to the state's interest in children. Uh, and that was the first steps that were taken to remove the authority and the influence of parents to minimize that with the goal to eliminate it to where the state makes all those determinations. So it's been slow in coming, but it's coming. And so all those things that are going on are, are going on for a reason. And that's kind of the, the stuff that, uh, why the, the stuff we're looking at not only deals with whether or not God even exists, um, but it reveals a great deal about our society and explains why our society is the way uh, that it is. Yes? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. In India, they actually practice in some of the poor villages. Um, in India, it's very expensive to have a, a daughter because the way that the culture works, when she gets married, the family of the daughter has to provide a very large dowry to the family of the male. So if you have more than one daughter, it's going to break you. So... In so many, in hundreds of smaller villages, they don't do this so much in the city, but in hundreds of smaller villages, they have midwives. And if a woman gives birth and it's her second daughter, the midwife will take, the head midwife will take the baby out behind the building and crush its head. And uh, that came out as a result of the um, preponderance of... Um, sonograms and things that, that, you know, a woman can go to the doctor and find out the sex of their baby. 
And so what was going on in India, in the bigger cities, among the wealthy, is that many women, like a very high percentage, were determining or deciding to get an abortion because the, the baby in the womb was female. And, of course, back then, you didn't have the LGBTQA whatever uh, movement, and so feminism was still a real big deal, and obviously that's a problem if you're killing all these females. Uh, and so they were upset because that was the deciding factor, was this female need to kill the baby. Uh, and so there was a, you know, people were trying to move and come up with whatever they could come up with to prevent that from happening. Um, now, because of the LGBTQA movement, feminism is not quite as consistently hung on to, or at least it's not politically viable any longer. They're having problems uh, uh, arguing for power or whatever. But that was, that was going on in India. Um, so it's a big problem. So, and so in, in India, I think in the, not so much in the Middle East, but it, there's, it's, it's affecting them a little bit. And in China, there's a shortage really of women. And so you've got, you know, like 15 men, men for every woman. And, that, that can destabilize a country um, because you don't have offspring and you, know, you don't have any future generations and all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of stuff that goes into all of these things. And again, all these things can be traced back to whether a society or individuals, religious beliefs or at least their philosophical beliefs, which is going to reveal where they are spiritually. And you move away from the Bible, that's what you get. Um, and it's a, it's a problem. Pardon me? Well, I know that. I think most of us know that. Yeah, it's just, you know, taking the next steps to, uh, I guess, uh, make it all happen. So then, with what we're talking about, uh, sometimes talking to an individual, you can say, well, if God does exist, then uh, you, you ask them to say, okay, well, instead of you and I arguing about whether or not God exists, let's just pretend he does exist, and then you go ahead and present your, your uh, question or whatever. Um, but a lot of people, a lot, a lot of times, people won't do that. So you have to try the the route you want to try is to go from their perspective. So again, just because someone doesn't like what God does or they don't like what God doesn't do, those things are not evidence that God doesn't exist. So you may still have a problem. Example: So there's a problem of evil, which we can still handle and deal with with individuals. But remember that if you're talking to an individual, some do think that because they raise this issue, or, and you say, well. God has reasons for suffering. They don't like that. So they say, well, that, does, that, that doesn't, uh, I, I don't like that. You're not proving anything. So yeah, but just because you don't like it doesn't mean God doesn't exist. It's still a separate issue. And we just want, want to help them to become more logically consistent with what they're saying so we can move the argument. Again, I don't believe that we can argue someone into becoming a Christian. But we can undermine their philosophical foundation. And the goal, I think our goal should be to try to do that. So, and then, it, then what they're left with is to deal with the real questions or the real issues. And that's what we pray for, that they will, that they will recognize that there's no good reason for them to believe what they're believing, and then they begin to wonder, maybe to feel, you know, like uh, lost kind of an idea. They, they feel they don't have any, there's no anchor anymore for any kind of consistent morality. And so that makes them feel uneasy. Like, that can be great. You know, ask the Lord to turn the heat up on that. Um, uh, and, and then ask God to reveal himself to those individuals. So, try, so sometimes, again, in, in sharing the Lord with others, especially in our country, 
Um, you do want to share the gospel, but there are in, in, many times individuals won't let you get that far in the beginning. So you want to, you want to get them to doubt uh, what they believe to be true. And you can even ask them in, in your discussion that you're more than willing to consider any arguments they might want to raise for you to doubt what you believe. Because God's not afraid of questions now. We need to remember that. He's not afraid. Even though we've gone through those five reasons that the Bible gives why there's evil and suffering, those still aren't easy. Those are hard things sometimes to grapple with. But they do make sense. And it does come from the Bible. And, they can show, and they're shown to be true. Uh, and we also have to take a step back from our own individual lives and realize you know, there is a bigger picture. And there is, a, there is a, the, the culmination of all things in the future. When the Lord returns and he deals finally with sin once and for all and all those things, we look forward to that. So that day is coming. Um, and so uh, we, we, we really have nothing uh, to worry about. You will find that many people, I've used this term before, are, they don't always intend to be, but they're intellectually dishonest. And that is they just don't want to deal. If you've, if you've been successful in eroding the basis for what they believe or what they're saying, or at least show that what they're saying doesn't make any sense. The obvious thing, the obvious questions would then be, okay, so if what I believe doesn't make sense, then what is the answer? And, and we're willing to give them what we believe the answer to be. You'll find that most still don't want, they don't even want to hear it. All right? So they're, they're being, they may say they want the truth, but they don't really. Uh, that's why sometimes in, uh, if you're having those kind of discussions with individuals, they may cut you off before you make the final point because they can already tell where it's going. They can already tell they're going to be on the losing end. So they don't want to get to that point. And so they'll find a reason to, to not get there um, because they don't want to have to face those issues. And, and that's really what we want. Because we want them to be forced to face those issues. And that's what we pray for. And it's not, so, it's not because we want them to be miserable. We don't, it's not that we want that, but we do know that for most individuals, they need to come to the end of themselves in some way, shape, or form so that they will consider ultimate reality and who God is and what is life about, what is my life about, what is the purpose of life, all those kinds of issues. Uh, and most people, or maybe many people, at least many Westerners, Americans, they don't want to go in that direction. That's why... Um, and I know I've mentioned this to you before, but that's why a lot of people don't want to be alone because they don't, they don't, they don't want to be alone with their thoughts. They don't, want, they don't want to sit and think because your mind's going to begin to drift to certain things. And so that's why people will always, they always have something going. You know, they got the headphones on, they got the music on, they never want silence. They may not say it, they may not even be aware of it, but they don't want silence. Uh, I think I've showed you before, I think they've, they've done these surveys, 80 to 90% of all people who check into a hotel within the first five minutes turn the TV on, even if they're not planning on watching it. TV goes on. And the percentage goes up if you're by yourself. TV goes on. Because they don't, because they don't want to be left with, or nowadays, it would be, you know, you got your phone, so music or whatever. But you immediately do that because you don't want silence. Because it always leads to examining your life. This is how it goes. Uh, that's why many individuals who get arrested for the first time when you're thrown in jail, um, whether they've been on drugs or not, can become highly agitated because there's, there's no distractions and, and they don't want to be left alone with their thoughts. And I've talked to guys who have 
been left alone with their thoughts and come to, it's amazing how many of them come to the same conclusion. My life's a mess. I really mess it up. Something is wrong somewhere. Something's wrong with me. Um, and it's amazing how many of them, some, they don't know what, but they know somehow God's the answer. And they want a Bible because they know they can get one. And a lot of them will begin to read it. I wish they all would come to Christ. They don't. Um, but it's the same kind of thing. That's why sometimes in the lives of individuals, um, you know, they, they kind of stir trouble up. They, they do that because they don't want to be left alone with their thoughts. They, don't, they haven't thought it all through, but they want drama. They, there has to be drama. Something has to be going on. Um, because the, the alternative to that is silence, what we would call peace. And they, they can't handle that. They don't want that. You know, when I go on vacation, if I ever go on a cruise, my favorite part of the cruise is phones don't work. That's awesome. There's a lot of people that, that, that makes them really nervous. And it's not just young people. You know, <laughs> you go most places. It's us older ones, you know, I got that phone going. I mean, I do it. I've got the phone going on. I'm doing emails. I'm doing texting. I'm, stuff's always going on. All right? But when you get into a situation where you can't have it, and I'm good with that. There are a lot of people that aren't. Uh, and normally, I don't, say, I don't like to say that. It seems often that, that individuals who have a hard time with that and maybe even panic over that are individuals that tend to be spiritually shallow or empty. It's just, you know, because if you're psychologically inept, to me, psychology and spirituality is almost the same thing. It's, it's the socius, psychology is trying to separate the spiritual out of the individual, but you're still dealing with the spiritual part of man. So, anyway. So, uh, back to this. So, we believe that a God who is truly God not a limited pagan deity or an impersonal higher power of force has the right to punish, judge, and destroy. That's why a lot of times when I talk to individuals, I'll say, I use this phrasing. I'll say, if God is God. So normally when an individual hears that, they, they may go, wait a minute, what do you mean if God is God? So, and I'm glad they asked that. So if, we're, we're talking about God. So if God is God, meaning if God is truly God, he is omniscient. He knows everything. He is all-powerful. He is the cause of all things. If that's true, then everything we are is dependent upon him. That then means he has the right to determine what is right and wrong, what's right and wrong for my life. He has the right to punish the wicked. He has the right to reward the right. He has the right to do that. If God is God. If he's not that kind of God, I don't, then to me he's not God and I don't know what we're talking about. Right, and most individuals, well, not say most, I think quite a few individuals, when we get right down to it, if they were to define who do they truly think God is or what do they think God really is, they would normally come up with a being that is all-powerful and all-knowing. They're going to come up with something like that. And that's a good thing. We want them to say that. That way you can always go back and say, well, you said that if there really was a God, he would be a being that is this. So if this is true... That then means your life and my life only exist because he willed it. It's dependent upon him. I am obligated to him. In the same way, the individuals who know nothing about God may are, feel obligated to their parents. Why? Well, my parents gave me, gave me life. My parents took care of me when I was a helpless baby. So there's a sense of obligation there. It's great. So we just use the same thing, except we ramp it up uh, because obviously it's greater if, um, if God does exist. So again, it's unpopular. A lot of individuals have disdain for this idea that God has the right to punish and to judge. 
Uh, that's why there are, there are times individuals will, will make statements. Uh, and again, this is done to derail Christianity primarily. Al- almost a lot of the, the books that are written that are anti-religious tend to be anti-Christian. That's the main thing they're aiming for. But the idea is, the, they'll, they'll say something like this. So the idea of punishing evildoers is adolescent. That's what people do when they're in middle school. When you become adults, you no longer think that way. Now, that can sound good in a nice, pleasant social setting. There's no way that's true. So you're telling me that if a man comes into your home and brutally murders your mother, and she's tortured for hours before she dies, you're saying it's a middle school idea that we would want that individual to be held accountable and punished for what he did? Every now and then you might get somebody who'll say, well, yeah, I do believe that. They're lying to you, but that's okay. Right? People don't think that way. When it becomes personal, it changes a lot. Some individuals, or rarely individuals, will try to find a way to get around that. But when you make the statement that you don't believe that, that this, in this idea that you know, God is some kind of a mean, which we never said he was mean, but they'll describe him that way, as a mean ogre who just wants to punish the wicked, Again, take that to its logical conclusion. So what you're telling me then, someone kidnaps your kid, not a big deal. If you get your kid back and, and uh, your kid's been harmed forever, no, no punishment necessary. We don't punish the wicked. We're not concerned that they do it again. Right? They're not going to sit there and say, yeah, if they take my kid. I mean, I don't see how an individual can do that honestly. Uh, and most individuals, they won't. And they, they may say, or they might say, well, that's an extreme example. Then you have to say, well, you know, that extreme example happens almost every single day in our country, much less the world. You know, again, remember, a lot of people, just in these kind of discussions, and we tend to do this as human beings, we tend to think that the world, the whole world, is what you and I experience every day. And there are some books out there that describe, uh, I think, there's, oh man, there's a book that has the, has the word locust in it. The locust effect. Yes, the locust effect. Read that book. That'll blow your mind. If you don't want to read the book, get that book and read the first hundred pages. Because it helps to explain how justice works in many places in the world. It'll blow your mind. You will immediately thank the Lord you live in this country. Because it is, it's brutal. It's incredible. And it's a very... What they're describing is not a unique situation. It's very common throughout the world. Just common. And, uh, and, when, and when you're faced with that kind of a world, then these individuals who say, well, that, you know, you're describing a, an extreme situation, they have no idea what they're talking about. They're not dealing with reality. It may not be common in your world, but your world's pretty small, and my world's pretty small. Uh, even, with, even with the advent of all the social media and access we have to news throughout the world, um, what goes on is not reported. All right? It's not a conspiracy theory. It's just how, it's just how things work. Um, you, know, you can check the headlines across the world. You just go on the Internet and just you know, put news, Germany, news, France, news, Bolivia, whatever. Just go through all that. And what you see is in most countries, there's a few of the, of the same headlines we have about what's going on internationally. So try to go a little deeper in some of the things that have other pages, and then you begin to see, you know, the crime stats and how things are going and whatever. I think uh, I think I told you guys or mentioned it maybe three or four months ago. 
I think in, I think it's in Colombia. Uh, the problem they're having now is um, they're dealing with a number of mass murders. That's that's where someone comes in and kills 10, 12, 15 people all at once. And they're having a problem with that because it happens a lot, like every week, uh, sometimes several times in a week. Um, you know, we had that happen here once in the nation. It's the big story for like we can't believe this happened. If you have two in the same month, we think, oh man, our country's falling apart. You imagine having three every week, four months. People would people would be freaking out, and gun sales would go up again uh, <laughs> because of uh, because of that kind of thing. So uh, again, when individuals say those kinds of things, I don't think they're being. They may be ignorant, but it may also be that they're just being intellectually dishonest. So again, what appears to be this problem of evil and suffering, what appears to be in their mind the ace of spades that destroys Christianity actually destroys whatever they believe and becomes a strong point in favor of Christianity. Because Christianity is the only one who not only admits that there's evil, but we, something's done about it. God will judge. No one gets away with anything. It, it will be judged, period. And um, no one, the others do not have an answer for that. Let me read you one more thing and we'll be done. It's again, it's from uh, Tim Keller. He was having a conversation with a lady who was just outraged that uh, he had mentioned that God was a judge. And so he said this to her. <clears throat> he said, why are you offended? Well, she looked puzzled. I respectfully urge you to consider your cultural location when you find the Christian teaching about hell offensive. So I went on to point out the secular, that, that secular Westerners get upset by the doctrine of hell, but on the other hand, they find the biblical teaching about turning the other cheek and forgiving enemies appealing. I then asked her to consider how someone from a very different culture sees Christianity. In traditional societies, the teaching about turning the other cheek makes absolutely no sense. It offends people's deepest instincts about what is right. For them, the doctrine of a God of judgment, however, is no problem at all. And that's what many missionaries, uh, from things that I've read, have discovered through the years, is that going into the countries... If, um, uh, if you're only teaching the love of God, um, they don't have very many, very many people who are interested in Christianity. They don't. When they teach that God is loving and that God is just and that God punishes the wicked, they listen. Because they, they are all offended that anyone would believe in a God who does not punish the wicked. They can't even fathom that. Um, so it's just kind of an interesting perspective, to say the least. So we will move forward from this and begin to move into uh, some specific things that, uh, as I told you, people like Bart Ehrman and some of those guys will say when they give their lectures trying to specifically undermine Christianity. We'll get into some other arguments they make. These will be arguments that are usually made against the Bible itself, where they appear to quote uh, statistics and facts that make the Bible look weak, or make the Bible look like it's wrong, or that there's been a massive cover-up. And then we'll be able to look at them specifically and see how those statements are untrue uh, in many ways, and then why they're being used and why they're effective uh, in undermining uh, what, pe or what uh, people believe. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your grace and, and your love. We thank you, Father, that your truth is absolute, and that even though man has tried for literally thousands of years to undermine the truth of Scripture, to undermine the truth of who you are, they truly have been unsuccessful at every turn because true truth will always stand firm. 
and we thank you for that. Lord, we know that our belief in the truth is not because we're smarter than anybody else. It's because of your grace and you opening our eyes and our hearts to be able to understand and comprehend the truth of Scripture. And we thank you for that. We pray, Lord, that we will continue to have a, a, a burden and, and a heart of concern for those who don't know Christ. That we will recognize, Lord, that they're not really our enemies, even if they get angry at us. That the problem is between them and you, and that the answer is the gospel of Christ. We're grateful, Lord, that even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That, Father, we can proclaim the same message to them. That even in the midst of man's rebellion, God sent Christ to reconcile us to himself and to forgive sin. So, Father, we pray that we'll continue to stand firm on the message of the word. That, Lord, it will comfort our heart, give to us great confidence in you. And that, Lord, that confidence will continue to, that we will reap the benefits of that confidence by experiencing great joy and trust and satisfaction and peace in this life as we seek to live a life that pleases you. We ask, Lord, you help us to recognize opportunities that you give us to speak to others about Christ. We pray you would give us boldness and a willingness to engage others in these conversations. As always, we thank you. Keep us safe as we go home. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I got two questions. Okay. Um, thank you for sending me. Oh yeah, that welcome. From my brother, but I don't really know how to approach him. The, the times I've talked to him before, try to talk to him, he said, "Well, I'm not really sure what you're trying to say about me." Huh. And I said, "Well, I'm, I'm trying to just share with you what I believe." Uh-huh. So he's very defensive. Right. So you should ask him why he's defensive. Just ask him. Say why he's defensive. You, he's going to pay for my Tory lenses, and I'm like, well, okay. No, well, the thing is this, if he really believes oh, no. well, in what he's saying. When I sent him, remember that first year, I wanted everybody to have a Bible, yeah. a John MacArthur study Bible. Yeah. Okay, I sent him one. Uh-huh. And you know what he said? Uh-huh. I said, well, did you, did you get your Bible? Because I sent it to his P.O. box instead yeah. of his home address. Uh-huh. And he said, yeah, but I mean, do you realize I already have 10 Bibles? And I thought, well, and in the COVID, my brother is always somebody... I was always the quietest one growing up.